Welcome to Headline Talks, our podcast on European news coverage and those at the heart of it. My name is Marco Cassis. I'm the senior researcher producer at Headline News Facilities Productions. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Rob Bynum, who is the CEO of DMA Media Group, of which Headline is part. Rob has spent most of his career launching news channels in many different countries. He's behind the startup of more than 20 channels in the last 30 years. Rob, how have they changed in that time? Well, for a start, there's a lot more of them than there used to be. I mean, pretty much everybody has a news channel or wants a news channel these days. But the real difference is that uh, you can't really just talk about TV news channels now. You talk about digital news channels, so that includes social mobile, online, every device that brings you the news is incorporated into a a news service. Of course, television is still an important element. From a technical point of view, it's never been easier or cheaper in real terms to get live pictures from almost everywhere in the world. And that's That's a significant change to how we gather and focus the news. It used to be very expensive to do fairly basic things like get up a satellite or do a live. Now you can do it on your mobile phone if you want to. And how do you think the audiences have changed for those channels? Do they want different things now than a few decades ago? I think they're more sophisticated and more demanding in some ways, but perhaps in some ways not being served perfectly well by everyone. What I mean by that is the audience wants news now. It doesn't want to wait till the evening. It doesn't want to wait till the next bulletin at the top of the hour. It wants it now. It wants to see it on a mobile or a device as it breaks. And that's pretty much part and parcel of what news channels do. The difficulty about that is that what you might sometimes not be doing very effectively and audiences need it is providing context and background and understanding the stories. I mean, it's easy to just constantly break news. It's not easy, but it's possible. But explaining what the issues are around a story and how different factors are in play is very challenging for news producers everywhere. And I think that they have to serve the audiences as well as they can. Audiences will tend to want to go for short bursts of news. The attention span is probably shorter now than it used to be. I mean, I have tremendous difficulty getting my children to focus on anything for more than about 20 seconds. So these challenges are there and and we need to keep them in mind all the time. Do you think that need for a constant urgency in news has changed or has changed the, our, the quality of our news? I think that because we can provide it immediately, which we do, people expect it. And, and it's perfectly legitimate. Why, why should things happen with our politicians or our leaders or events in the world? And people, people have a right to know about it as quickly as possible, as accurately as possible. That's fine. I think the problem is that young people are used to that level of, especially young people, are used to that level of immediacy, but sometimes that prevails against understanding what the issues are. That's the key to it. A certain lack of in-depth storytelling, yeah, yeah. maybe. And, and I think that you can't, you, you know, you, it's no good just saying, concentrate everyone, this is going to take us 10 minutes to tell you, you have to listen to it. 
because they won't. They'll switch off, they'll go somewhere else, they'll swipe the screen and look at other stuff. So the challenge is to make it interesting and appealing and to pick up on the things that people are interested in. So, you know, what we as journalists are interested in, we tend to be interested in politics, we tend to be interested in things that governments do, we tend to be interested in aspects of international policy making and relations. These are important stories for the audience, but you shouldn't automatically take it for granted that that's what they want all the time. I mean, things like climate change is a good example of something that's now pretty mainstream in our news coverage. But it took quite a lot of years for that to be a mainstream topic. And we need always to be listening to the feedback and the responses we get from our audiences. That's the important part. And, you know, the audience is there because it wants to be, not because you own it. You only borrow the audience. You never own the audience. That's an interesting uh, take on it. Do you think that in a way, the fact that all these sources and this information is, is available to everyone, do you think that it has maybe in a negative way impacted the diversity of mainstream news because all news channels have to cover the same events yeah. and the same sources? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it tends to commoditize it. So you assume, I mean, take, for example, the royal story in the UK of recent weeks and days. I mean, pretty much anybody can have access to those pictures that they're pooled. Broadcasters share pictures of what's going on. If you watch a news bulletin which covers, for example, the war in Ukraine, I mean, you know, many of the pictures are the same pictures that you'll get on French or German or Danish or Swedish or British television because the agencies are picking them up from local people or the same stringers have fed them. Now, that's not a bad thing, but it means that you have to concentrate, if you're a news channel, you have to concentrate on providing your own brand values, how you tell the story, how you explain it, what are the extra, you know, whether it's object, all the good things like impartiality, objectivity, accuracy. But you need to also provide something which is a little bit more different make your coverage compelling and different, distinctive from what's out there because it, everybody can everybody can access the pictures and they will. So use that as a starting point rather than the thing in itself. Do you see certain political trends in how news channels have developed? Yes, too much really. I think that what we're seeing is more channels that are overtly political. I mean, you know, in America, for instance, there's there's Fox News that is overtly political there are other channels which are even more to the right than Fox News. But then correspondingly, channels like MSNBC or, or even CNN in some aspects of its coverage have moved because of the existence of the political channel of the right to being more representative of liberal opinion. And this is, you know, what tends to happen with overtly political channels is that they polarize the way news is done. And that, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that as long as you get some kind of representation and balance. The other thing that we're seeing a lot of is what I would call soft national power. So you can get a lot of channels which are representing one country's point of view. I mean, Russia Today, RT, 
is a very good example. It's giving you a Russian perspective on the news. May not always be one that we or you or people in the liberal West agree with, but it is a Russian political perspective. Now, there are lots of other channels which are national channels, often by state-run media, which are not as directly political as, say, RT, but are delivering soft messaging about the country that they're coming from. Again, not always a bad thing. I mean, you know, you probably find out more about Britain by watching the BBC, although they wouldn't say they're a British news service. You might find out more about America by watching CNN. But I think that there's a whole spectrum between that, which is probably you know, relatively benign, and you know, really channels which are very, one would almost use the word propaganda. And as someone who sets up lots of news channels, how do you navigate that <laughs> when you're setting up a channel? We are independent. We don't have any affiliation to any political party or any commercial entity. So that's the starting point. And there are certain things that we won't do. We won't ever get involved in helping to tell stories that are blatantly untrue or blatantly hateful or whatever. What we say is if you want to do straight propaganda, that's fine. You don't really need us. You don't need global expertise to do straight propaganda. Anybody can do straight propaganda. You've probably got people in your government who do straight propaganda. If you want a channel that's respected by the audiences, then you better do it in a way that respects them because that's the way you build trust and, and a relationship with audiences. So I think we would always urge people to be as far away as they can be from basic propaganda. And how would you define what an audience needs, expects from a news channel? Well, one thing is that audiences are able to respond either by, I mean, you know, we know now from online and digital, who's watching, possibly where they're watching, possibly how long they're watching in a much more accurate way than we ever used to. So we've got that basic metric. But also, you know, people are quite capable of leaving their opinions and their commentary and their views about the coverage. And the slight risk with taking that too seriously is it tends to be self-selecting. So the noisiest people are often the most extreme in an opinion or political way, and they may not represent the audience as a whole. What I'm trying to develop is the idea of audiences actually having an active part in some story selections or even how within an individual story you develop the coverage over a day or a week or something. Now, it's not like come on in and have your own news channel and be an editor for a day. But it is, okay, these are the stories that we think we're going to cover today or tomorrow or this week. We're interested in what you think as an audience about how to do them. You can vote if you want to. But more importantly, we're interested in how you think the story should be developed. What are the questions you want answered? And I, I know, I mean, in India, for instance, where there is incredibly aggressive competition with some of the Hindi news channels. Some, some of them have done quite a lot of that kind of, if you want more of this, vote or get involved or tell us. And I, I think that's, I mean, in a way, the thing about social media 
is that it's made people think, yeah, well, I can be involved in this. I can help fashion the debate or the discussion or the conversation. Now, we don't, as you know, branded objective news channels, we don't want the, the sort of echo chamber of social media. We want something that's a little bit more curated. But, you know, audiences should be allowed to have an involvement. And that's not just... I'm not interested in, for instance, international affairs. I only want climate change. It's if we're doing, for example, a story about trade or a story about the royal family in the UK, what, what are the areas that you want us to explore? What do you feel we're not serving you? And if you can have an element of that feeding into the coverage, I think that can be quite useful and constructive. Those sorts of questions, in other words, what you have to do is take on board what social media has done in terms of changing the way audiences and people relate to media and introduce that into what is basically the much more curated world of news channels. That's tremendously interesting. We've talked about the fact that news and information has become more commodified. So an uneasy question that many newsrooms deal with is, can and should news be profitable? Well, um, can it be profitable? I, I mean, you know, an awful lot of news channels don't make money. An awful lot of news channels are supported by governments or else they're part of a wider publishing or media empire. So, you know, you've got the sport, you've got the movies, you've got the entertainment, you better have a news channel. And I mean, in, in reality, compared with the cost of, let's say, big entertainment shows or live sport, the costs of a news channel don't need to be exorbitant. Um, yeah, I think they can be profitable. Often they take a long time, several years to become profitable. I mean, in some ways, the fact that digital is so much there gives us an opportunity to have different kinds of revenue streams, possibly from sponsorships and everything. We need to be careful about how we play brands and product placements, that there has to be you know, you have to take care to be clear about what's objective editorial and what's supplied by somebody else. But I don't, let's put it this way, I don't think you should launch a news channel because you want to become a billionaire from it. You will take a very long time or perhaps you won't achieve that at all. So you've launched news channels all over the world in all different kind of contexts. What are your favorite stories or anecdotes from these experiences? <laughs> they're, all, they're all wonderful. But no, but they are mostly made by people who are very committed people who want them to be good and to succeed. I, I suppose we ought to mention the BBC because like it or hate it, the BBC is a very important media player. And I was very pleased to be part of the launch of BBC Arabic and BBC Persian, especially BBC Persian. And what was amazing about that was it was it took a lot of young journalists, obviously they were Farsi speakers, they were Persians themselves, and they worked at the BBC, couldn't operate in, in Iran, but they operated at predominantly from London, and they provided this channel which was putting all the good BBC values. This is TV, they'd had radio for many decades, but this was TV. And they 
put um, impartiality, objectivity, accuracy into a market which has enormously censored news, state-controlled propagandist news. And it had an immediate and really strong impact on the audience, which, you know, the debate and the conversation changed. And I think that was a, a very moving, powerful thing to experience. And uh, it was wonderful to be a part of it. Sky News, I should mention, I was in the launch team of Sky News in the UK. And to be honest, in those days, you know, we're talking about the end of the 1980s. So before the internet, and we were many ways making up the rules for continuous live channel coverage as we went along. I mean, I remember there was one time when some I think it was the IRA fired some missiles into the back of Downing Street in number 10 Downing Street. John Major was prime minister. And they were, nobody was killed. They were just fired off the back of a lorry from central London somewhere, extraordinarily. And we had to get the first pictures. There was no live camera. And so the pictures were on videotape and they were raced to the Westminster office and played in... I was in the control room. The channel was quite young, so it was, a, you know, pretty much still in early mode. And I was in the control room, and I said to the anchor and the director, we've got the first pictures of this, not very much, there was a bit of smoke, but you could see something. And I said, we're going to play them out live. So, you know, tell the viewers what we're doing and tell the viewers that they are seeing this as we are seeing it. I mean, obviously, if there'd been dead bodies or whatever, we would have come off it. But the thing was that we ran through the video, which let's say was 20 seconds, 30 seconds. And then I said, so I said to the presenter, tell the viewers that we're going to spin that tape back and go through it again. And we'll talk about it with our defense correspondent or what have you. And the director said, OK, coming to the presenter on camera three. And I said, no, don't go to the presenter, stay on the tape. And he said, but I can't put spooling tape to air. And I said, yes, you can. Of course you can, because what you're saying to the viewer is, join us as we're seeing it, you're seeing it, as we're winding it back, you're winding it back. Now, that had not been done before. He, I mean, I broke every director guideline in the book and he thought, I thought he was going to walk out, but he stayed there. And I mean, it's not uncommon to see those kind of rough edges showing in coverage now. And it was great to be in at the beginning of that. I should mention some of the other international channels that I've been involved with. There's a wonderful channel called Rudaw in northern Iraq, in the Kurdish region, based in Erbil. And I was very involved in taking a group of people who hadn't had much media experience and helping to train them and launch the channel with a team. And they've stayed, they've been on air for about 10 years now. They're still number one in the market and they're very professional. They're very sort of world-class in their coverage. And, and what they, I mean, because they are so good and, you know, their news coverage is so good, you watch all the other competitor tra channels trying to keep up. But that was good. I mean, I've seen some pretty bad stuff as well. There's a channel we worked for, I won't name it, which didn't have much money. And so when you were doing, I'll say where the channel was, it was African and international. 
And so you would have a director and a studio crew in, say, London or Washington or some remote place in live touch with the headquarters in an African country, which I will not mention. And guess how they did it? There was no connection. There was no fiber. There was no... We're doing it on a mobile phone. So what happens with mobile phones? Occasionally, they the signal drops out. You lose the... So you can be sitting there and, and the producer and the director sometimes loses contact completely. And you... I mean, it's actually like flying a plane blindfolded. <laughs> so that was challenging. But I mean, you know, actually, weirdly enough, their coverage, well, weirdly, their, their coverage is really good. But there's a resourcing issue, which they could fix, but they don't have the money at the moment. I'm sure they will. The worst thing throughout it all is the word dullness. I mean, news channels, again, it's about audiences. The biggest enemy of a good news channel is being dull. Dull is the enemy of success in all aspects of media, but particularly news, because you're, again, you don't have a right to own the audience. The audience is there because they want to be there, and you're inviting them into your home. Your channel is helping them to understand the world that they live in, but you're there because they want to be there. You know, you're only there because they want to be there. And I think that a lot of people fall into this trap of thinking that the news has to be serious and it has to be didactic. So it's sit down, kids, listen up, here's the news. And of course, you know, people are not going to watch that. They go away, they switch channels. And I keep saying, you know, you can cover the serious stories, but you need some light and shade. You need some human interest. It's all about this conversation. We've smiled a bit. We've talked about serious things a bit. That's how a news channel should be. It shouldn't just all be boom, 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 very, very heavy. But I mean, generally speaking, the people I've worked with and the people in the field, I mean, some amazingly brave people, some amazingly committed people and incredibly professional for the most part. Maybe I've just been lucky, but I mean, on the whole, it's quite an honor to have been associated with all these channels. You started your career as a journalist in a more traditional sense. Of you're still a journalist, but now you're shaping news channels. Do you miss being a journalist or do you like the fact that you can shape how this type of channel works? Yeah. I mean, you're always a journalist, aren't you? You're a journalist, I'm a journalist, and you never stop being a journalist. It kind of stays with you forever. And so, <laughs> uh, I mean, I sit down in front of the television at home and shout at the running order or shout at the story selection or the coverage, much to the amusement and slight annoyance of my family. But I guess, in a way, what's nice is you're trying to bring some of the lessons you've learned and put them at the disposal of other people. And it's great to have that opportunity. DMA is headquartered in London. You're visiting headline here today in Brussels. Do you see a lot of difference in news coverage in London-based media versus Brussels-based media? And how has Brexit impacted that? Well, Brexit's impacted everything. I think the interesting thing is that from the point of view of British audiences, The Europe story is equally important as it was before Brexit. The relationship of the UK to Europe is always going to be pivotal, whether it's in the EU or out of it. And all the sort of implications politically and commercially and so on are there. I think that in some ways we are 
much more sophisticated about how we cover Europe than ever we were before. We know that the Europe story, I mean, I'm not just saying about the UK, I'm saying about uh, EU countries as well. You know, we know that the Europe story is very important to how people live and what choices they're making and so on. RTE and Tony Connolly does from here is world beating. I mean, he's on every other media. Everybody wants to queue up to talk to him. And his analysis of Ireland and the UK and the rest of Europe is, you know, exemplary, really. And he makes it interesting and entertaining and valuable. And I, I love the way that you see EU broadcasters making the story come alive. And there are also lots of issues now which are EU issues or European issues, like climate change is a good example. Migration is a good example. You know, people smuggling, things like this. And then there's the, you know, the war on our doorstep as well. So, I mean, in some ways, Europe is actually at the heart and in the middle of the conversation now. And that's meant that the coverage has improved, I think. It's not just covering committees and parliamentary sessions. It's right in people's lives. We've talked about how news channels have changed over the past few decades. How do you see them changing towards the future? It's difficult to predict, isn't it, the future? I mean, there I was in Sky News and who would have realized that the internet would become so enormous in our lives in the late 80s, early 90s? I think what you will see is better algorithms which will say, if you're interested in these subjects, these are the news stories we'll send you. Is that a good thing? It's kind of a good thing up to a point. I mean, I'm sure that the stories I'm interested in won't be necessarily the same as the stories you're interested in. But I think if it causes news channels to niche up too much, often you lose the ability of communicating quite important news and human things to a large number of people, which is what the point of the exercise is. So I think you will see news channels becoming more niche or having the, you, as a viewer, you'll have the ability to choose how, you know, what stories you get, what stories you don't get. I think in the field, I mean, look, you know, we can be live from almost anywhere in the world now. And we don't really need loads of technicians and equipment. And we virtually just a mobile, just a smartphone will we'll do it. That's going to continue. That's going to mean that, you know, you won't be covering a war or a major natural disaster or even a political story several days after it happened, as happened in certainly in my career in the early days. It's instant. It's live. Is that necessarily a good thing? Well, for the reasons that we've talked about, which is that sometimes it plays against kind of deeper context. So we have to watch out for that. The other thing is that what digital has helped us do is graphics is making a huge comeback. You know, a lot of digital content and social context is very graphics heavy. And it's actually made big, bold, understandable graphics a major part in TV news channels in a way that it probably wasn't before. Graphics used to be something you'd stick in an intro or drop into a package. But now, you know, you expect graphics to be quite central to the storytelling because they're often the best way of expressing abstract concepts. And we've got, you know, terribly clever video walls in studios and touchscreens and whatever. I think there's 
a tendency to get all the toys out and play with them at the same time among some directors and producers. And that's, you know, the technology isn't it. The technology is only there to help you tell the story to the viewers. And the viewers probably less excited about your amazing touchscreen video wall than you are, you see. So you have to be a bit careful. But I think in, in a bizarre way, it gets easier for us to cover news and it gets cheaper in real terms. If you wanted a satellite when I was working for BBC or ITN as a junior producer, you know, you'd have to go on your hands and knees and beg the foreign editor to bring something in because it costs thousands of dollars now. Just do it. And if you can't afford a full bandwidth satellite, just get a mobile phone and you're there. The difficulty is that the, the same principles still apply. Tell the story, make it clear, make it compelling, respect the audience. That's the thing that hasn't changed and shouldn't change. And how has disinformation impacted all that? We've seen disinformation play a huge role in the pandemic, yeah. also in the Ukraine war. How does that affect media? Yeah, it's an industry, isn't it? Disinformation is an industry. Fake news is an industry. Often fake news is not the people that are shouting fake news the loudest. It's they who are creating the fake news. I think it just means that we have to be as careful as we can be and do all the things that we have always done as journalists, which is check our sources, which is to try to be accurate, to try to be honest. If we're not sure about something, say that we're not sure about it. We haven't been able to verify these pictures. We haven't been able to independently check the number of dead or, or what, what you know, the usual things that journalists do. And we've always had fake news. You know, in World War II, we had fake news. Fake news has been a staple of governments and bad companies for forever, ever since news has been around. And, you know, go back to the Reformation, there was plenty of fake news around there, even about the afterworld. So in some senses, I mean, what has happened, I think, is it's become more sophisticated. So the thing that you have to cleave to is that you are providing something that the audience can trust. And, and the audience finds out soon enough if it's fake news. I mean, not necessarily as soon as you'd want them to, but if you are honest with the audience and you're providing something that's checked and balanced and objective, then they will, they will want to have your service. That has got the biggest value. And then uh, a final question. You've mentioned some tips for newsmakers. If someone wants to launch a news channel tomorrow, what would your concrete advice be? My do's and don'ts. I've written down some do's and don'ts for, for news channels. So some of these are, are sort of big picture things and some of them are quite sort of detailed. I mean, one thing is, you know, a news channel is quite a complicated beast and you can't just throw it on air. I've been in places where they've said, well, we've built the studios, we've got the offices, we've got a logo. So can we go on there next week? And you say, well, no, because that's just the, the stuff around the edges. What you haven't got is the news in the heart of it. And you have to allow enough time to rehearse and pilot your channel. So I always say to startup news channels, is if you're doing a startup on TV, you want to have at least a month, preferably six weeks of real-time pilots. So you go around the clock and you do the news As you would do if you were on air, you do it in a pilot mode. And therefore, when you get to the stage where you do go on air, you literally just switch the button to live 
and you've had a month or more of practice. And that's important. The other thing, which sounds a bit prosaic, but it is a common problem. They build a beautiful studio. They build the best kit. They have a wonderful graphics look. And the thing they always forget is that you need lots of journalists to make the news. And they have to be somewhere. They have to sit or stand somewhere. (laughs) And every news channel I've ever launched never has enough desks for the journalists. It's one of these kind of weird rules. So, you know, work out how many journalists you're going to need on a given day, then add some because people are going to come in or people are going to come in on their days off or people are going to hang around after their shift ends and then add some space. And then because having every, I mean, in COVID, of course, we we got used to keeping a distance from each other. But as we move back into a, a less distanced world, that's something to think about. The other one is do get independent advice because the world is full of people selling equipment or selling gizmos, gimmicks, people selling you the answer to all your needs. But they're doing it because they're making it or they're making a profit or they get a license fee or whatever. So get independent advice. I mean, you know, little bit of a plug for the company here, DMA Media and Headline, independently owned, independent of any brand or technical equipment or political entity or publishing company, independent advice. Because I've got no vested interest in you choosing this kind of device or that kind of device, as long as I know that I can tell you this will help you tell the story better than this one. And, you know, I don't get money for it. So get independent advice. And then the don'ts. Okay, so we've done some of this. Don't, Don't be dull, because dull... Dull is the enemy of good news. And you need to understand that people, they like the big stories, but they also like the human interest. They like the football results. They like the sport. They like the showbiz. Because, you know, that's what we're like, isn't it? We are very interested in important things, but we're also very interested in the weather or the sport or the the hobby things, you know? So don't be dull and don't forget light and shade. The other thing is a big don't is don't be tempted to take positions on things. As a journalist, you will believe passionately about certain things. That's why we're journalists, because we're interested in the world and how it works. And sometimes there'll be times where we feel, yes, but what this politician is doing is wrong or what this regime is doing is wrong. And I remember in the early days of BBC Persian, there were lots of incredibly committed journalists there who were anti-regime. And, you know, we had to say there were some older people there like me and some of the very experienced BBC Persian staff. And you have to say, look, you know, we're the BBC. You're not here to take a position. You're here to provide the facts and the story and the reporting. And the viewers will make up their minds. And that's the best way is to let the viewers make up their minds. Climate change is another one. People are passionate about climate change. We all worry about climate change. But, you know, in all honesty, it's better for us to let people make the judgment because people are not stupid. Audiences are increasingly sophisticated. And if you proselytize, I've got my own views. And I think that... The final thing, and perhaps the most important of all, is the question of who you're doing this for. So I always say to startups or trainees or or whatever, who are you doing this for? And they say, well, I'm doing it for the head of news. And I say, well, sort of, but not really. 
well, I'm doing it for the head of the channel. Well, sort of, but not really. Doing it for the president. No. I'm doing it for the owner. No. Well, who am I doing it for? You're doing it for the viewer. Now, you know, there, are, there might be millions of viewers, but there is a viewer, you know, because millions are made up of individuals or small groups. And you're doing it for the viewer. And the only thing that matters in this crazy world of news is your relationship with the viewer because you are providing that service for the viewer. And if you don't ever forget that, you'll probably do quite a good news channel. Thank you so much, Rob, for being here today. 